1: Mohammed Alerian joins us. He drops by the studio here in New York City. Bloomberg Opinion Colonist himself. Mohamed, just allow me to read this for our listeners so they get the good, benefit good of hearing the first paragraph. This from Bill Dudley, the former New York Fed president. In Bloomberg opinion, U.S. President Donald Trump's trade war with China keeps undermining the confidence of business and consumers, worsening the economic outlook. This manufactured disaster in the making presents the Federal Reserve with a dilemma. Should it mitigate the damage by providing offsetting stimulus or refuse to play along? If the ultimate goal is a healthy economy, the Fed should seriously consider the latter
2: approach. Wow. Mohammed, should it? So first, John and Tom, thanks for having me on. This is part of a change I call a a break of the cognitive entrenchment of central banks, which is we are doing the right thing and it's going to work. In that same piece, Dudley goes on to say that the central bank's effort to cushion the blow might be not merely ineffectual, they might make things worse. So now we're talking about the benefits going down, the costs and the risks going up. And I think at Jackson Hall, that view, which the Fed cannot compensate for structural impediment to growth, is quite widespread. What's new here is the political angle. And as Tom said, it's a really notable and significant.
0: Uh, John, oh, excuse me, I'm new. I'm, excuse me, I've been away so you, long, you found the mic I button. forgot where the mic button well, was. Well, well John, done. the last paragraph on the electoral process of the nation. Stunning.
1: I mean, I think it's insane. There's even an argument, this is from Bill Dudley, there's even an argument that the election itself falls within the Fed's purview. After all, Trump's re-election arguably presents a threat to the US and a global economy, to the Fed's independence and its ability to achieve its employment and inflation objectives. If the goal of monetary policy is to achieve the best long-term economic outcome, then Fed officials should consider how their officials affect the political outcome in 2020. Mohammed, surely respecting political independence needs to work both ways here. The Federal Reserve can't make decisions like that, can they?
2: They cannot, and, and they will not. I think that that last paragraph will cause all sorts of flashing yellow lights within the Fed buildings, and I'm talking both in the, in the board in Washington and the regional banks, simply because you do not want the Fed to be even more politicized, and this will make the Fed even more politicized because it comes from a former president of the New York Fed.
0: Ran Goldman Sachs economics uh, for years, and of course, out of Berkeley. And I would say what's so interesting here, this is an essay within the scope of our history, Dr. L. Arian, we'd accept from the firebrand Wayne Angel from a long time ago. This is not Wayne Angel, this is Bill Dudley. And it leads to the game theory, which is your worldwide acclaim as you dash to Cambridge next year, the game theory here. Are we setting the Fed up for an abrupt binomial T decision? Or is it going to be more complex than that?
2: So I think it is increasingly towards a T decision. And remember what I suggested to you over the last few years, and it's in my book, is that whether it's economic- See how he's
0: selling his book this early in no, the no. morning? No, no, it's 7.05 it- 7 a.m. and Hilarion's selling his book. But well, you've been part, up for that's a while, part of Tom. The deal. That's part of the
3: deal,
2: okay, He gives sorry. us some of his time, he gets to plug his book. Continue, please. But whether it's institutional, which is what we're talking about, economic, financial, political, or social, we are heading towards more and more <clears throat> binary outcomes. That is the reality. Look at what happened overnight in terms of data out of Germany, look at what's happening to the Chinese right. exchange rate. It's all telling you that increasingly, it is binary.
0: Extend this to the central bank that Madame Lagarde will run. Are there gonna be essays like Bill Dudley's well, for the ECB and the Bank so, of let's England? Let's be clear on the
1: ECB and Mohammed can weigh in on this. This is the kind of politics that got Europe exactly. into trouble.
0: Well, I don't, you know, I'm not going to no, say that. You I, I can, can say, say that.
1: I can say it happily. You can file this essay firmly under things you can say once you've left the FOMC. Unfortunately, these are things the ECB did when these officials ran the European Central Bank. They believed, over in Germany at the Bundesbank, if you offset some of the policies, the bad policies in Southern Europe, you encourage them. And all they caused was a much bigger crisis, a crisis, a second crisis in Europe that we're still recovering from right now. And Mohammed I think the experience of Europe underlines just how dangerous these kinds of ideas are. If you start messing with politics at a central bank, you can cause much bigger problems than the problem right in front of your face.
2: Yeah, if you're on the other side, if you're a politician, you say, so let me get this right. Is a central bank going to take political consideration in making its decision? If the answer is yes, then you will not give them political autonomy. And they need political autonomy for operational reasons. So I agree with you. This is a dangerous road. Let's talk about the efficacy of policy. I think there's some people listening to this program, Mohammed, saying
1: the Fed wishes it could have the decision to offset the trade storm or not. Can they even offset it even if they want to? And I think that's the bigger issue that comes from Jackson Hole, and you touched on it. We're now questioning the efficacy of monetary policy. How important is
2: that shift, Mohammed? It's really important because it's come from central bankers themselves. There's been many of us economists saying, increasingly, central banks are pushing on a string when it comes to economic outcomes. Not when it comes to market outcomes, but when it comes to economic outcomes. And now there's a recognition within the central bank community that that's the case. Having said that, understand the central banks are held hostage by markets they will deliver the fed will deliver an interest rate cut in september the ecb will deliver an interest rate cut QE. not because it's going to have an impact on the economy it won't right but the the alternative is
0: worse i mean the bank of england we can go back to badgett in 1880 and all that in the us 1907 didn't work out so well we staggered through the war 1951 mcchesney martin declared independence with a lot of courage and then we had the challenges of vietnam and expansive debt and now we're at this point do you equate the dudley scream which is what it really is Do you equate that with these other historical moments, or is it just another essay in the 2019 continuum?
2: So I think it's another essay so far, Tom, in a continuum of a more polarized world that we're living in, and that's spreading and touching many— What will be
0: the response of this, Mohammed? It'll be
2: interesting to see how the White House responds. This may add fuel— to to, the, to a fire that's already been burning. So, so keep an eye on this. This will cause potentially, Chairman Powell,
1: even more problems. Mohammed, you've talked about some of the negative headlines around the world at the moment, risking becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy, especially here in the United States. Just walk me through the
2: argument there, the thinking currently. So we've got three very important developments. One is trade, and over the last few days we've had a ceasefire, but it's nothing more than a temporary ceasefire. The underlying dynamics call for escalation. Two, further evidence today out of Germany that Europe is slowing and slowing very rapidly, and so is Asia. And then the third element um, that we're getting out of all this is a sense that the inversion of the yield curve, while not warranted by U.S. economic developments, may nevertheless Mm -hmm. cause sentiment to be more careful. So there's a risk of a self-fulfilling
0: process. Catherine Mann will join us later of Citigroup, iconic at the OECD and at Brandeis before. She, and I'll, that major uh, nod to Stephen Roach of Morgan Stanley, owns this concept of the dysfunction of our international economics. Are we dealing with a domestic Fed that has dysfunction with the White House? I mean, is it so fragile that, that Powell has to step every step of the way carefully, or can he be more assertive? So I
2: think it's hard for him to be more assertive. But Tom, it's not just the White House, it's with markets too. Markets have been pressing the Fed harder and harder, and the Fed finds itself in a corner. It's in a lose-lose situation. Is it,
0: is it a market pressing because of a new lower terminal value, whether in, on a Fisherian basis, is it a new lower terminal value of interest rates, of inflation, of economic growth? Is that really what we're rationalizing here?
2: So, so there's no doubt that this is playing a role, but it's, it's more basic than this. I think the markets feel empowered and entitled to request ample and predictable liquidity in order to repress volatility that is the mi- the mindset of the market and the market now Right. Over and, over <laughs> and this again. is where
0: Fogart's Landoff, Deutsche Bank, gets so upset, John, because the outcome of this is a negative interest rate, which Alarion still hasn't explained to me. So, Mohammed, ultimately, <clears throat> the
1: problem is that the Fed policy debate has been hijacked by the counterfactual. If they act, it's not going to do much to ease financial conditions. It's not going to do much to support the economy. But they have to present us with the counterfactual. If we don't act... Financial conditions could tighten. We can exacerbate problems. And therefore, wherever the market goes, they have to follow. Is that where we're at now with the Federal Reserve? Market I,
2: pricing dictates the next move. You just put it perfectly, yes. And not only that, the more the Fed gives the market, the more the market will, will, will requ- require, not just request, but require f- from the Fed. So if you're in the bond market, do you just assume...
1: Yields are going much lower from here. Is that the basic assumption for global fixed income
2: investors at the moment? It is, and you see it playing out day in and day out.
0: I wrote with us Mohammed El Arian, really a special moment for Bloomberg surveillance. William Dudley writing a scathing essay for Bloomberg opinion, critical of the president and in some ways critical of the Fed. It, it will be the most talked about item uh, within global economics today. And we're honored that Mohammed El Arian uh, joins us on his path uh, next year to Cambridge and Queen's uh, College. Dr. El Arian, if, if we look at this moment that we're in, We are at a point where all of our listeners, the ones most unsophisticated, are savers getting crushed. You and Bill Gross invented this dialogue of it will go on for a long time. Do you see an end to this? Do you see an end to the folly of negative interest rates and negative real rates?
2: So we have to understand that persistent negative rates break a capitalist system the system is not wired to operate at negative rates agreed so in the beginning it doesn't look bad but with time you're creating massive structural damage um, that damage is resource misallocation it is disincentives for good behavior it is incentives for bad behavior and it is taking away in in financial protection products so understand that the road we're on will end in tears. Now, how long does it take? I don't know. Um, we have shown that we can be playing extra innings, which we have been doing for a while now, but I get a sense that we're getting to the neck of this T-junction where there's either gonna be a good policy response that get us out of all this, or we're <clears> gonna look at financial instability and recession globally. Mohamed, before we let you go, and I know you've got a run, we do wanna to get to some capital allocation
1: decisions. If you had a conviction call right now, In financial markets, Mohammed. just as a final question, what would that conviction call be?
2: So it's an easy one for the professional investors, much harder for the retail investor. For the professional investors, it's about looking for dislocations. Look at Argentina today in the emerging world. Two, completing markets that have broken down, mainly in private credit. And three, being more tactical. The retail investor is really hard. And what I tell my retail investor friends is expect volatility. If you cannot stomach that volatility because it's gonna make you do the wrong thing at the wrong time, this is a good time to lower your risk
1: exposure. Mohammed, it's great to catch up with you. What a privilege, what a pleasure, what a way to start the morning this Tuesday morning. Mohammed Al-Arian there, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist and Alliance's chief economic advisor. Pleased to say that joining Tom and I in the studio, Maddie Dressner, JP Morgan Asset Management Managing Director. Maddie, great to have you with us on the program.
4: Great, thank you. Let's just begin with me. that
1: trade story, shall we? Your take is that the current tariffs are set to impact consumers. We haven't seen that in a big way yet. We've seen it hit manufacturing worldwide in China, in Europe, and the United States. Not the US consumer yet. Why is that about to change?
4: Well, if you look at the actual data, uh, in terms of what's, what's about to get impacted, uh, impact the consumer. It's actually end goods and consumer goods that, that will have the tariffs uh, implemented. So uh, I, the consumer has been resilient here. We've liked the fact that uh, we see tight labor markets and, and continuing wage growth. Um, but you will see tariffs on the end consumer. So to the extent that they uh, reduce spending, I think that's still a question for us. Uh, we do believe that the U.S. consumer contain- remains resilient. Uh, but in in the face of increased expenses.
1: Your base case for the economy and for Fed policy then with all of that in mind, what is it, Maddie?
4: So we are still constructive about the economy, again, hinging on the consumer and the strength of spending. Um, you know, the Fed, we do believe, is going to go again in September. Uh, that That's certainly uh, within the Fed funds, futures, pricing, and, and given the comments last week from Powell, we do expect to see that happen. The key question for us is what does a 25 basis point cut in the Fed funds rate do for mm. a, a company that is worried about their supply chain? One of the great
0: things, Maddie, about you is not only do you do asset allocation and your economics from Buffalo and, and all that, but you've actually helped run money. How strange is that to actually have experience uh, winning and losing in the markets? Right now, do I want to be with the market or like your real routine fund? Do I want a low R squared and be away from the market index? Which strategy forward? at the margin makes the most sense given all the craziness we've had.
4: Yeah. So can I answer that with, with both? <laughs> I what think are you, there an is economist? a way I mean,
0: <laughs> A portfolio manager would say, no, this right. is the path.
4: Well, there, you know, we're <clears throat> multi-asset class. There's a lot, a lot of different ways to experience upside and experience exposure to markets what's some intelligent messes? way to
0: be in the market. right? So now? I
4: think, you know, having exposure to us equities, but also having exposure to credit credit specifically that is, that is a uh, leverage to the U S consumer. So securitized credit uh, that has the backing of the U.S. consumer. I think that is a very nice way to get exposure Mm -hmm. to what we think is really working in the U.S. economy while sidestepping some of the landmines. Let's talk
1: about that with a bit more detail. This is a potential
0: real yield guest right here. It's a very good guest.
1: Maddie. this sounds a little bit PIMCO-esque. I I hear this argument from PIMCO as well. The problem that we've had so far through 19, though, is that the performance has come from corporate credit risk. That is where your performance has come. Why is that about to change?
4: Well again I think right now if you look at if you look at corporate credit and you look at uh, at corporations within the economy uh, there's certainly more leverage than we've seen in the past uh, but interest coverage ratios look look okay so we're not running screaming from corporate credit but we like the US consumer here you know tight labor markets wage growth continuing to 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 be strong uh, there is money in their pockets despite the fact that they are also saving uh, as well so so we like the U.S. consumer and anything that is leveraged to that, um, we think is a, is a safer way to go. We also like high yields here, uh, more so than we like investment grade credit, uh, because those companies actually have have been a little bit more uh, reasonable about their borrowing and not over well, themselves. Well, let's talk
1: about that, because you will know that your colleague Bob Michael, the CIO of J.P. Morgan Asset Management, made a lot of headlines about a month or so ago, when he talked about selling down high yield credit. Talk to me about why you think high yield is a buy, even here?
4: Think about the perspective that you come. So your view, my view, is of a multi-asset class investor. So I have the universe of of investments at my fingertips. I could put a dollar into stocks. I could put a dollar into bonds. I could put a dollar into credit. For us, credit has exposure to the US economy, Mm -hmm. and the upside of that, with a narrower range of outcomes, than U.S. Okay, equities. but let's go all
0: Peter Lynch He mentions PIMCO. Let's wander up to Boston and Fidelity. Is there a risk here within fund-to-funds and asset allocation of being over-diversified, of too many choices? I think anyone Why can't I just buy Amazon and be happy? I mean, that's well, what it comes down to.
4: There's a lot of risk in having those concentrated exposures, I think. Yeah, Thinking I'm making not a, just about, it's a joke. It's Tuesday yeah.
0: joke day. Is there a risk of being too diversified in this tumult?
4: I think there is a risk of being too diversified, which is why when we think about adding allocations to our portfolio, we don't think about market value. We think Mm -hmm. about the degree to which it adds risk to the portfolio. And we're diversifying the sources of risk in portfolios to make sure that it's consistent with our asset What's the epsilon look
0: like on the right side? What's the systemic risk out there that any of our listeners have to face right
4: now? Certainly the volatility around trade causing the global slowdown uh, and a reduction in the Fed funds is is not going to do anything to help us there. So to the extent that we see a retrenchment in the U.S. consumer, I think that's the biggest risk.
1: That's the breakdown here that could happen that I think worries everyone. At the moment, the Fed is seen as a institution that needs to act just to support financial conditions. But at some point, Maddie, do we get to the point where we start to think, the Fed can no longer support financial conditions regardless of how quickly they drop interest rates. Is that the risk here? Is that that something you're really thinking about?
4: that's, That's part of the risk. I think the question is, how far does policy go? Because monetary policy isn't the only policy tool. We have fiscal policy. <clears throat> excuse me, that we can use here to, to make sure that we are putting a floor on the economy, not just here, but mm. in Europe and, and other places in Asia. So th- there is a, a policy right. support that we could potentially see beyond monetary
0: We've housing. heard in some conversations uh, the, the idea of parsing between goods producing America, manufacturing America, and going pure service sector America. Has J.P. Morgan made that distinction, or are you, are you doing traditional securities analysis.
4: We think it's important to diversify across different segments of the market, as opposed to making concentrated sector bets. I think more defensive sectors are going are to find a floor here, particularly as the 10-year trades at 150. Uh, so you're going to see some of those income-oriented sectors do well, not necessarily because manufacturing is, is on the rise, but because those mm-hmm. are the sectors that pay you a yield. We think it's better, actually, to get some of the upside in markets using options, for example, call options call options to buy call options whoa yep let's um, slow
0: down here this yeah. is this is really important the tradition folks is you have a portfolio you write options you bring in the premium or income from those options and if it you're taken away from you if the stock goes up great you're not doing the traditional options approach
4: no so that's that's more <clears throat> of an income-oriented yeah. yield-oriented strategy it's suspect
0: to say the least Continue with buy option.
4: It's buying the call option, which means as the market rallies, your call option that you own grows in value and the beta exposure that you have embedded in that also will grow. But if the market draws down, and you go through your strike prices, you shed equity market risk very, very quickly.
0: Well said, are you buying the option against the portfolio or are you buying it against cash or near cash equivalents?
4: So we're buying it on indices. So we're essentially using it to gain some broad market beta. So we'll buy it on U.S. equities, on European equities, on emerging markets. How many people
0: drove off the road in this conversation, And I think they hit
1: the brakes and they stopped to to listen a little bit more carefully. We need to get Maddie back. Maddie, this has been fabulous. Maddie, it's great to see there, you. We did Thank two Greek letters. That we did Epsilon and Beta. Maddie Destner joining us there. <clears throat> She'll be back on Delta. We'll do that here in a bit. JP Morgan, Asset Management Managing Director.
0: This is a joy over not the certitude but the clarity of his analysis of the economy anthony dwyer is not one to sit in cash he has enjoyed the lehman low bull market and he's enjoyed it because he has steadfastly said if there's a recession out there i guess i'm worried but i'm not worried because i don't see a, a recession mr dwyer joins us from Canaccord Genuity, uh, Tony, things have changed. Have you changed?
5: What things have changed? Credit's still flowing pretty good, and the demand is there. I, I, you know, for example, I'll, I'll give you an idea. The Moody's. BAA Bond Index, which is the lowest measure of investment grade, so there's a lot of debt there, and it's kind of the stuff you worry might get downgraded and and go negative and create a recession. That made a new low for the cycle in yield yesterday. And for the listeners, that means that in in the last three recessions, or every recession, what happens is investors get really scared that companies aren't doing well. Not only do they sell their stocks, but they first start selling their bonds because they they worry that a company cash flow can't support uh, the amount of debt that's out there. You think of your own balance sheet for the listener, right? So when that yield is hitting a new low... Not only is that showing no fear, they're buying as much as they can. So the, the things that really create a recession, there's no way, As Tom and John, we've done this long enough, you cannot fix debt with exponentially more debt. At some point, you're going to have to pay it off or not be able to afford it. Neither of those conditions exist, which is typically what happens in front of a recession.
1: So, Tony, is that what you see as your base case in the short term? Is that what you're starting tactically to position for?
5: Well, tactically, we had been looking. Uh, we had been looking for a five percent pullback. We got it. And Wall Street's filled with people like me that come on the radio and TV and say, "Oh, we expect a pullback," and then all of a sudden you get one and you run away like your hair's on fire. And you and I, John, for the listeners that have ever seen us, can't do that. That's very, that. Oh, That's very right, true. It's very
1: true.
0: Well, what little's left, Tom. I gotta still <laughs> hit the blue button, Tony. My vacation was so long. I still don't know where the blue button is in the radio studio here. <laughs>
5: So, you know, ultimately, that pullback, we got it. And again, because the credit markets are open, I'm still bullish, even with the 2.10 spread having inverted here. So this
1: is important, Tony. You've said we're in technical no man's land over the last couple of weeks. You've been looking for that 5% pullback. We've started to get that pullback. Tony, why are you still bullish here? Just what underpins that view? Just sort of walk us through that with a little bit more detail
5: well there's no question that the trade war has hit capital spending so companies aren't doing capital spending plans because they don't they honestly don't know where to do their production um, what has kept me bullish is the drop in interest rates how many of the listeners I wish I could take a poll where I could see them all and have their hands ri- uh, you know raised how Tony, many people refinance their debt because yeah. the yields have dropped so dramatically so the market has already done the fed's work for them because it's yeah. allowed people to to take out cheaper now,
0: debt tony you flatter us we've only got 12 listeners so you know you don't have to you know you <laughs> don't have to look too far to fans. see them all <laughs> yeah vet listeners we're up to 13 tony let's get back to square one which is sector analysis the ability to hold shares and to acquire new shares explain that dynamic this strange tuesday of august
5: well, there's multiple ways. So the individual investors that, you know, are likely listening, they get their 401k investment every month and they put their money in. And typically that goes into index funds now um, because there's been such a shift to what's called passive investing, which is index fund investing. So every month you have an increasing amount of money going into the market. And that's, that's really provided support there. The more active fund managers like your 401k, um, you know, that pick stocks are having a little bit of a harder time because that money going into the passive keeps going into the same stocks and that's not changing. So I think, I think, Tom, sector analysis hasn't been as important because it's so consistent. Um, it's the defensive trade with bond yields going down and software companies where you have predictable growth. That I think, by the way, is going to shift here. I think we're going to be going back to John's question. I think from a sector framework, for a, t- a temporary period, I think we're going to go back to offense where yeah. you know, this drop in bond yields kickstarts well, economic activity.
1: Well, let's ask that question, Tony. If we start to pivot away from software... Are you starting to think about going towards hardware? Never mind the sector breakdown within the sectors. That's what I think is interesting within tech right now, Tony. As you say, people have looked at software almost as a haven from what's happening internationally. Do we start to see the pivot from software to hardware to the chip makers and those kind of stories again?
5: I don't think it's going to be a long term move, John. But yeah, I do. So, you know, the bond market has done exactly what it did in the other two kind of non-recession environments that we've had, the slowdowns, the almost recession periods. Remember the European debt crisis in 2011? The market went down about 20 percent. Bond yields didn't finally bottom until July of the next year. Right. That's when the offensive trade started, when bond yields bottomed. Our view is that the Fed's going to become aggressive here. They they have to become aggressive, or, or honestly, it's really bad. If they don't get ahead of the market expectations and lower inflation expectations by signaling a much more accommodative stance, even if they only cut 25 basis points, we we got a bigger problem. But I think at this meeting, the September meeting, they're going to do just that, which kickstarts that same offensive trade that happened after the European debt crisis and happened after the commodity crisis of 2015-16. So, you know, the easiest thought is, okay, let's just put money into the software and and more, you know, defensive growth kind of names and the bond surrogates. That might not be the right... The right plan, right
1: here, Tony. I want to ask you a question and put forward an argument of a friend of this program's and a peer of yours, and it's uh, Jonathan Golub at Credit Suisse, who wrote the following just yesterday: "The conventional wisdom holds that you invest in bonds for yield and equities for capital appreciation. While this might be true historically, with ten-year <sighs> Treasury yields collapsing to one point five percent from three point two over the past nine months, stocks now offer the best of both." Tony, what do you think about that? Stocks now offer the best of income and the best of capital appreciation from here on out.
5: I think it's for here or on out until the time being, right? Until you do have signs of the credits. So yeah, I, I, happen to agree with that. Right. See, I, I'm not, I, I will call until you shut down the availability of money for the listeners and for businesses, I will always be bullish. It's not whether you buy okay. it or you're more aggressive. And that might I think what Jonathan's talking about is you've had that drop in yield. That's so significant that households and businesses are refinancing their debt and taking out new debt at much lower interest levels. Again, This is really bad down the road. You cannot Uh, do that with exponentially more. Tony,
0: just because of time, then, are you suggesting we climb on growth, we climb on board revenue growth in 25 multiple consumer stocks because they have persistency?
5: No, I, I, I think what you have to do, Tom, is not necessarily look at the valuation of each individual name. I, I Again, you know I don't go down to the individual name. but I, think I didn't mention Colgate or, you Colgate or, you know. Is, you know. Those areas that, that where the households are like um, building products, those that go into housing and making housing yeah. and, and re, redoing your house, those kind of stocks where the yields haven't gone down are what's going to collect the revenue. That's where the growth is going to be.
1: Hey, Tony, great to catch up with you. Tony Dwyer there, Canaccord Genuity Chief Market Strategist. Fabulous. Fantastic views.
0: We are wont to rip up the script. We've done that for uh, years with Catherine Mand of Brandeis of OECD and, of course, now Head of Economics at uh, Citigroup, Catherine Mann is without question one of our leading international economic economists, Was without well, question uh, could be considered for any Federal Reserve position uh, to serve her nation. And she joins us now, and all of this is a backdrop to the essay by the former New York Fed President William Dudley uh, on uh, the distance between the Fed and our president and his trade war. Catherine Mann, what was your first reaction, knowing Bill Dudley as well as you do, of this esteemed PhD from Berkeley writing an essay of that intensity paragraph to paragraph.
6: So I think what uh, we have to recognize is that people who serve at the Federal Reserve, and thank you very much for that recommendation, I would love to serve at the Federal Reserve, uh, which is where I started my career, and I'd I'd like to go back there. But I think what we're seeing here is the intensity of belief in uh, the role of that institution as as a steward of the economy and so these things of course he could never say if he was still in his position but people feel extremely strongly about their role at the Federal Reserve as a steward of the economy and how it must play that role very, right. very. And so we see that intensity
0: in this essay. Let's back up and go to the Catherine Mann wheelhouse, the subhead. The central bank should refuse to play along with an economic disaster in the making. You own the high ground on this. With Is the trade deficit sustainable in your decades of work on our dysfunction with China? Is that language too strong? Is this an economic disaster waiting to happen in the president's trade war?
6: Well, I think we've already seen the consequences of of uh, deglobalization. As, as you know, uh, City just issued uh, uh, a GPS on that titled that I wrote on global. You know, has for better or worse, has uh, globalization has peaked? Peak, peak. There has been peak globalization on both trade and finance. Are we at
0: peak dysfunction of China in the United States, or is it just a tit for tat sprawl of politicians?
6: Well, I think the argument is that this, the the current policies are designed to um, disengage. With the second largest uh, trading partner in the world, the second largest r- r- uh, market in the world, and that doesn't make sense in a world of globalization. You should be engaging more deeply with your 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 partners. These are larger. We markets. did not hear that at
0: Beirut yesterday, did we? Uh,
6: no, we did not. Um, and unfortunately, deglobalization uh, or disengagement is a recipe for a deterioration. Uh, in economic prospects, and that uh, mm-hmm. is going the the consequences of a deterioration of economic prospects is going to be borne more by the younger people than by the older people.
0: If you're just joining us, Catherine Mann of Citigroup. How should Vice Chairman Clarida, as the anointed monetary theorist of Chairman Powell's Fed, how should the Vice Chairman respond to this essay by Bill Dudley?
6: Well. I don't think that he would be in an appropriate position to, to respond. Um, the, the role of the Federal Reserve is to um, achieve its dual mandate. Uh, now, I do think that one of the interesting uh, issues that could be brought up as uh, important consequences of the potential move at the Federal Reserve uh, to cut rates is whether or not that will fuel relatively more in the asset price spectrum as opposed to support the real economy. Okay, this is where on the edge of
0: Steve Rocha. We're going too yep. fast. Let's slow okay. down. They got a dual mandate: yes, price, jobs. Yes, you're suggesting, as Dr. Roach has suggested, with your combined efforts on dysfunction, that we could see a further asset bubble or bubbles, given assumed easing by the Fed.
6: Well, so we we you know we have. Um, it, if you look at if you look at a lot of the research, even done within the Federal Reserve, there's been a question about a shadow third mandate and financial stability, which doesn't mean financial markets are stable. It means financial markets price appropriately risk, and that shadow third mandate shows up in the discussions and the minutes at the mm-hmm. FOMC. So it's already there, and we already know this because if you have an asset bubble and it bursts, there are consequences for your. Your two official mandates. So there is an issue about whether or not uh, the potential easing that is in the cards, uh, at least the financial markets believe it's in the Mm -hmm. cards, and if it, you know, that potential easing, would it actually support the financial markets and not do much to support the real economy? Uh, Our view uh, that we put out in our last uh, um, Global Economic Outlook and and, uh, Strategy report was the central bank dilemma. Do you support an asset bubble because you think that the feed through to the real economy is worth it? Or do you support the asset bubble when in fact it will not support the real economy. And our view is that this uh, potential additional easing is uh, principally to support financial markets and will not be able to offset the trade consequences of the uh, current uh, policies.
0: John Hicks, 1939, and we construct an ISLM structure of the real economy and the money economy, the financial system, if you will. And then Mundell shows up at Columbia Mm -hmm. or wherever and brings in the currency market. All of a sudden, your wheelhouse is back in vogue, which is a study of unilateral or correlated currency interventions. And I assume we're way away from a president getting allies to currency intervene if he chooses. What is the efficacy of a Trump currency intervention if he starts jawboning that?
6: Well, one of the if we if we look at um, data on the strength of the uh, dollar relative to trading partners, it is relatively stronger. It, it has not uh, achieved previous peaks in terms of real real dollar strength, uh, but it is stronger than you know was three or four years ago. So the issue uh, of uh, currency wars or currency intervention would be to you know uh, depreciate the dollar so as to be uh, yet another strategy to support uh, the U.S. economy a, in that case a trade war. Is it an executable
0: war. strategy? That seems to be the question that I hear every conversation
6: uh so the the you know the trade uh, forex markets are 3 trillion dollars a day something like that uh the amount of firepower that's in the exchange exactly. stabilization fund is is a lot smaller it, and we also know that um that currency intervention does not have any sustainable impact on the on the currency unless there is uh, associated policies to, to 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 ratify the intervention and so you would have to have not just a deep a, a expansion right. or a policy shift uh, to policy cuts in the, in the U.S. But you would have to have complementary no policy cuts anywhere else. And that's certainly not what has been right. happening. All of the central banks, not all of them, but, but almost all of them around the world right. have been using the period of time where the, the Fed has cut in order to cut themselves.
0: Okay, I, I, One final question. I'm out of time. We could go for hours here with Catherine Mann of Citigroup. Um, the president's not going to call Kathy Mann. I know that. Mm-hmm. But maybe Lawrence Kudlow will. What do you say to Larry Kudlow today after this Dudley essay? The White House wants to use the Dudley essay to go after the Fed. What do you say to Lawrence Kudlow would be a responsible approach by the president?
6: I don't think, you know, frankly, I don't think anything that that was said in the Dudley essay isn't something that has already been said elsewhere. The power of that essay is who said it and um, the very... um, visceral way in which it was said. But but I don't think there's anything new in there to bring to the table. I don't think anybody, mm-hmm. even at the Fed, uh, in in its own corridors, I don't think there's anything new in that essay that they haven't already thought about.
0: This has been wonderful. Catherine Mann, thank you so much with Citigroup. And of course, her important essay out on deglobalization, a real effort by Catherine Mann at Citigroup to reframe where we are into uh, the autumn. Joy, and it is a double joy because not only is my good friend Mario Gabelli joining us here on value and on all the other things that you see in his important barons' work and also his uh, work in philanthropy and in investment as well. But it's especially important because Paul Sweeney is globally acclaimed for media present and media past. And we will get to Viacom, CBS and all the rest of it in a moment. But the news precedes us. March of 2008, Philip Morris spins off Altria and Philip Morris International. It was pretty successful in terms of total return until about 2017 for PM, Philip Morris International. They've come down to a moldy double-digit return after a very difficult two and a half years. Now, moments ago, they may made again. Does it surprise you that these big tight companies have a strategy to split apart and then to come back together again?
3: You know, I haven't thought about those two companies for a long time. But independent of that, the free market system should allow corporate CEOs to figure out whether they should have value added by splitting it up or value added by putting them back together. Then how do you respond to
0: Kraft Mondelez and the the, uh, bad will that's been written off on that transaction?
3: Uh, I'm a big shareholder of Mondelez. I like Irene Rosenfeld. I uh, like the new chap that's running it. Uh, I have no problem with regards to whatever they did. And I still like Mondelez, even though it's $54 today.
0: Where, where where was it? Reminder uh, our, yeah, our thanks, listeners. <laughs> for, uh, the duh. answers were Southard, right?
3: I'd have to hit a button on, <clears throat> on some machine to get that. What does
0: Mario Gabelli do when he has something off the price? Everybody talks about your successes. You were with us two days before Cadbury Schweppes uh, was taken out. Big success for you yeah, there. And I've got All a couple medium. of those.
3: Hopefully, two days before. What do you do when you have a dog?
0: What's What's Mario Gabelli do with a dog in the portfolio?
3: Uh, that is an interesting question because essentially we have. Companies like Superior Industries where the the management wouldn't listen to their shareholders. The stock was 25. All they had to do was fix a plant in Mexico. The stock is now two. Uh, Cincinnati Bell went out and bought a system in Hawaii, which is not exactly a popular. The stock was 17, it would have been 22. Today it's five. So we look at- Do you hold them?
0: You take them down and just wait?
3: No, it's a combination of both. Uh, We have tax sensitive clients. We would double up, sell some out. Uh, In the case of Cincinnati Bell, I think there may still be a glimmer of yeah. hope if they get the right guidance.
0: Yeah. Let's go to what has been so anticipated. I've had many, many emails, Paul Sweeney of CBS and Viacom. Maybe you can uh, <laughs> drive, maybe you can explain to our audience Mr. Gabelli's position here.
5: Exactly. So Mario has been a big holder of media stocks in his firm, a big holder of media stocks for since the beginning, and that includes CBS and Viacom. And in Viacom, it's interesting, you're a big shareholder there, but what's interesting to me is you're the biggest non, I guess, you know, national Amusements. National amusement shareholder yeah. of their voting stock. Tell right. us, number I, one, how you feel about this deal getting back together. And number two, how about the price? Uh, several dynamics
3: in that question. First, obviously, I started following CBS in the late 60s and I uh, watched Viacom yep. being spun off in 1970 <laughs> odd. And uh, some that put it together uh, called it Viacom. Fast forward, we're going to have a company with 615 million shares. Of that amount, 52 million approximately going to be voting stock. Of that amount, 41 million are going to own by National Amusement. So there's 10 million in public hands. Our clients will own about half of that. So if they ever need some uh, vote of the majority of the minority, we will have an element at the table. Now, this particular deal, uh, what we might, we would like to have gotten a premium, and we think we deserve one for the voting stock on the VIA and uh, we didn't get it. So that's an issue, but that, that's not, step back and say the following. Can the management pull it off? I think they'll do $30 million of EBITDA, yep. so to speak, with only about $200 million of CapEx over the next four or five years. Debt will be reduced dramatically. What? That's not gonna happen. Are they gonna put the money into more Uh, CBS access more direct to the consumer and are they going to go more global and put that footprint not only in places where they are short term they've got some problems with an Argentinian asset India is okay UK is okay and uh Tom Cruise will his movie (laughs) do well
5: there's a new Top Gun coming, Tom. So if you can think all the way
3: I back to
0: 1980,
6: I haven't seen the
3: first Top Gun. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's okay. Yeah, that's yeah. what you get. I uh, want on of your flicks. So did you
0: get taken to the cleaners on this? Is that no, 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 no. The no, no. Look, the, the the
3: the day the deal was announced, CBS was around 50-ish. It's around 45. CBS is a bargain today, and I think that the combination. Why of, is
0: it a bargain if it's missing streaming? Are they a bargain because they're not doing streaming?
3: No, because they got significant cash flow. They've got 15 billion dollars in net debt and. You got. You're selling at two and a half times EBITDA, and I think over two time. Two and a
0: half times EBITDA. No, the debt. The, the debt.
3: debt. Excuse me. Okay, and if you take the 600 million shares and multiply by 45 dollars, you get a market cap that allows them to be considered a mini even though some political guy running for office is saying this is a mega merger <laughs> I can't believe that somebody knows how to do math
5: then exactly so can <laughs> this new Viacom CBS combined company compete in a world where there's Disney just bought most of Rupert's assets at 21st Century yeah, Fox and, and Netflix and yeah, Facebook yeah, yeah, and yada, yada, no, yada, you yada. got
3: the obvious questions and that is is the scale and will they how much will it cost to get into And are they as CBS acts as direct to the consumer are they late to the party and is, uh Disney Plus way ahead of them, and obviously Netflix, and the answer is maybe. Uh, so do you bring another big player into the game? Will someone like Apple come in and say, hey, I have to own some more content? Will Amazon want to do it? Uh, what will Sherry do with, uh, you know, when this thing closes in three to four months?
0: Well, what's she going to do? You're the knower of all.
3: Yeah, I, I basically think she should step back and just support Bakish mm-hmm. and Ionello running the business and allowing okay. the creative juices of that combined enterprise mm-hmm. to flow at an at an increasing rate. But that's not going to happen. They're going to have to do right. more in technology, and they'll do something. On who are they going to partner with, Tom? Interesting. Neither did I think Peppa Pig, that is Entertainment One, would have been bought by Hasbro.
5: So you got you know, a new... So Tom has a we got, he... we got
0: Peppa Pig and Top Gun, Tom Cruise <laughs> all in the same interview. It's, exactly. What has that occurred before?
5: Big value. There's in, Intellectual property is what the, well, it was what the new <laughs> phrase is out there in Hollywood. Mario Bye. DiBelli,
0: thank you so much on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.